Well, good morning, guys in Leith. How are you doing? This is such an exciting day. And do you know what? It's a bit quieter here today. I don't know if you've noticed that. Half your folk have gone south. Can you believe that? Well, don't worry. I remember moving in here with 50 people in 2003. And then that year, 2004, we grew to 100 people. The next year, we grew to 200 people. The year after that, to 300 people in this venue with three services. And then we launched Gorgi. And this place got real empty. And then, you know, we, by the grace of God, Sammy, you know, it was the grace of God, Sammy uh, was at the helm and, and, you know, the church kind of relaunched itself here in Leith and it started growing again and we've been hitting the 200s and here we've just launched south. So you guys have actually been the backbone of pioneering stuff all over the city. You're pioneers and the best days are ahead, Destiny Leith. Honestly, you are. I really believe that. You can give yourself a clap. Awesome. It's easy to be in a church that just stays the same. That's easy. But to be in a church that changes, some people don't like change. But thank God for change because God wants to do a great thing in our city as well as in our lives. And the city and us benefit as we transition forward. Lord, I just pray just now as we turn to the Bible that you'd speak to us. You'd reveal yourself in the ways only you can. I pray you'd speak and I pray we would hear and I pray you'd change our lives. You know, everyone here today from the, the youngest believer to the most mature... You know, some people today are feeling distant from you. Some people today are facing challenges. And I, be- I believe and I pray that at this time, you will break in and speak and change lives in a way that only you can. Welcome God by your wonderful, sweet Holy Spirit in this place. Perform miracles, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, someone said that a man's life is made up of 20 years of his mother asking him where he's going, 40 years of his wife's, wife asking him where he's been, and one hour at his funeral whenever everyone wonders where he's gone. <laughs> Do you know that you are eternally secure? Do you know that? One person does. Do you know that? Do you know that you can know that? You can live with an absolute assurance that not just in this life, but in eternity, you are secure. We're in John 10. Wow, as I've been studying these verses this week, there is so much in here. So I'm going to have to zoom in on just one thing to really nail home with us today. But we're going to go John 10, verse 22 onwards. And Jesus is speaking here. This is in Jerusalem. And it says, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnades. The Jews who were there were gathering around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep... Listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Say, never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, 
I've shown you many good works from my father. For which one of these do you stone me? I like the cocky answer. Was it the, the raising the dead, or was it opening the blind eyes? Well, that was, that was about, you have to stone me for that one, right? I, I don't know. What, it, it was, anyway. I have shown you many good works from my father. Which of these, for which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God's. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law that I have said to you, that you are God's? If they called them God's to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be set aside. Another translation says, and Scripture cannot be broken. Look at Jesus' high view of Scripture. He quotes an obscure psalm written by an unknown author called one of the sons of Asaph. And apparently, he says, and that, even that, an obscure verse in the Bible cannot be broken. That's Jesus' high view of Scripture. If we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to have a high view of Scripture. And Scripture cannot be set aside. What about, those, what about the one whom the Father set apart for his very own and sent him into the world? Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I, I said I am the son of uh, God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, and there he stayed, and many people came to him. And they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man is true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Maybe in this place, many will believe in Jesus. In this part of town, many will believe in Jesus. In this city and in our generation, many will believe in Jesus. So Jesus makes a divine claim. You saw it in the verses, right? Verse 24, uh, they asked him the question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, Jesus actually, on a number of occasions, did tell people plainly. He told the blind man, I am the Messiah. He told the woman at the well, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. He told people plainly, but they were people who were actually interested. These people weren't interested. They were actually just looking for an excuse to stone him legitimately. They were looking for some blasphemy claim that they could hold against them to, take, to legitimize their own bitterness and prejudice. So Jesus was, therefore, being wise in the way he interacted with them. But he claimed, he, he answered the question, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. And in essence, he said, yes, I'm the Messiah. But I'm so much, much more than the Messiah. They had this expectation that the Messiah would be an earthly person who would bring political revolution. But here they were faced with this divine person. Fully man, yes, but fully God's who would bring not just a revolution against the Romans. No, no, that wasn't, his agenda wasn't to rescue them from Rome. His agenda was to rescue them from their ultimate enemies, Satan, sin, and death. God had such a bigger agenda, and these people were so small-minded they couldn't see it. The Bible says in Colossians 2 verse 9, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. Jesus was none other than God in the flesh. And this is a mystery and we don't have time to really unpack this. We've done that in other times and in other places. But we believe in this great truth that the Christians call the Trinity. That God is, there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons. Jesus, the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Eternally. And each one is God, fully God's. And yet there's not 
three beings as one being in three persons. I know, it's confusing. I know it kind of boggles with your mind. I get it, but it doesn't mean it's not true. You would expect God to be awesome and quite mysterious and quite ungraspable. You would expect him because he's God. He's God. Augustine, one of the great church fathers from the early church, he was trying to grapple. One day he was out walking along beside the, the shore of the sea, trying to grapple with this whole idea that God is Trinity, one God who's eternally existed in three persons. And he's trying to grapple this. And as he was walking along the seashore, he came across a little, pers- a little boy playing in the sands. And the little boy just dug a hole in the sand and he had this shell and he was going and scooping water and throwing it into the hole he'd made. And he said to the little boy, what are you doing? And the little boy said, I'm trying to get the sea into my hole. And he, and he was shoveling the, the ocean and putting it into the little hole he'd made. He was going to get all of the ocean into the hole. Quite a, a, a tall order, but he was going to go for it. And, uh, and Augustine suddenly realized that that's exactly what he's been trying to do. Here he was standing at the ocean of infinity, and he's been attempting to grasp the infinity, the infinite, with his finite minds. And that's what it's like trying to fully understand the Trinity. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that we might not understand, but nevertheless, it's something we have to believe and hold to, because it is the revelation of God through the Bible. It's God's revelation. But they accused him of blasphemy. They knew he was claiming to be God, even though he was a man. And they accused him of blasphemy. Destiny Church, Edinburgh, when, when, he, when he said, they said in verse 33, you a mere man claim to be God. Destiny Church, Edinburgh would agree with their statement. We would agree Jesus, a mere man, was claiming to be God. But we disagree with their conclusion. They concluded that that claim was blasphemous. We conclude that that, blame, that claim is 100% true. That Jesus, a man, is indeed God. Now, the irony here is they were accusing him of blasphemy, but in them accusing him of blasphemy, they were actually being blasphemous. <laughs> they were accusing God of being blasphemous. That's blasphemous. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way. This, he was a famous preacher in the past, and he said this, if Christ is only a man, then I am an idolater. And if he is very God, then the man who denies him is a blasphemer. In other words, you can't be on the fence when it comes to this. Jesus is either fully God and fully man, and you bow down and worship and acknowledge him as your Lord, Savior, God, and King, or you deny his deity and you become a blasphemer like these Pharisees who are accusing him of blasphemy. And what's interesting here is the way that Jesus revealed himself. You know, the big things for the Jews here, the big thing for the Jews was that he claimed to be God. That was the big thing in their mind. That was what shouted so loudly to them. They heard this claim, and he was saying, he just claimed to be God, and they couldn't get over that. That was the biggest thing in their minds. But the question is, what was the biggest thing in Jesus' minds? You know, him claiming to be God wasn't something new for him. He kind of got used to that. He'd kind of been that for all eternity, all right? It wasn't new on him. Wow, I am God. No, it wasn't something new on him. It wasn't a surprise for him. He knew and he's going to get used to it for all eternity that he was God's. So what's the big thing in Jesus' minds? Well, look at how he describes himself as God. It's really interesting. The big thing in Jesus' minds was the big thing that was in God's minds when in the garden, Adam had rebelled against God 
And God, with a broken heart, said, Adam, where are you? He knew where he was. But he was looking for Adam to realize that he'd gone away. And he was looking to rescue. And then right through the Bible, the Bible is a story of God's rescue plan. Consistently reaching out and rescuing, looking for the lost. The last week, in the verses just before these verses, we looked at how Jesus described himself as the good shepherd. And in another place, he says that the good shepherd goes looking for the lost sheep. So when Jesus was describing himself as God, that was the big thing in the Jews' minds. That wasn't the big thing for Jesus. He knew he was God. That wasn't a surprise for him. The big thing in Jesus' mind was what he went on to say. He said, listen to how he described himself, verses 27 to 30. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. There's the divine claim. I and the Father are one. But the divine claim comes in the midst of Jesus describing his great mission. The biggest thing in Jesus' mind here wasn't the claim of being God. The biggest thing in Jesus' mind here was God's mission. Why God had become a man in the first place. That rescue plan that was so there. And I love this. I love this. He's not trying to wow us with his divinity. He's trying to assure us of our salvation. You know, you can get caught up in, in all the theological arguments, but Jesus doesn't give you a theological argument here. He gives you something that's going to help you on Monday morning. I love that. He reveals himself in God in such a way that you end up with great assurance. I love that. He reveals himself in God, so not, not so that you have great inflated thoughts and can academically describe God in a great way. He reveals himself in God in such a way that you can walk with an absolute certainty in your soul about where you stand with him, who is God. It's amazing. He did it this way. So here's the question. Are you saved? Are you saved? It's an important question. Look at what Jesus says, verse 26. He said this to the Jews who didn't believe, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus said, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Conversely, the opposite is true as well. You do believe because you are his sheep. Faith is an evidence that you're his sheep. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It wasn't like, okay, you, you sat down and thought real hard about God. And you looked at all the arguments for and against and then you kind of figured there was a God. Then you went through all the religions, that there all the options. Okay, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad. Da, 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 da. And you kind of narrowed it down. And said, actually, actually, I think Jesus is the one with the credibility. And then, okay, I'll believe. That's not how it happens. You may have gone through some arguments in your head, and maybe you need to do that. And that's okay. And our faith does stand to reason. Okay, no problem. But I have to tell you that if you have truth, authentic, saving faith, it's not because you figured God out. It's because God gave you a gift. You're saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. You didn't conjure up that faith. It says that not of yourself, not as a result of, it was a gift of God, not as a result of works, 
so that you may boast, so that no one may boast. This, is, this, this gift of God came to you, this gift called faith came to you. I remember when it came to me. I was 15 years old. In fact, I remember just before I came to faith, I was at a Billy Graham crusade in Parkhead in Glasgow. And I went forward at the ends, and I went forward with everyone else who went forward to put their faith in Jesus. I wasn't going forward to put my faith in Jesus because that wasn't where I was at. I, went, I was going forward to ask someone to pray for me. And when I met with one of the people, one of the prayer partners who were there in that stadium, um, I, they said, well, how can I pray for you? And I said, listen, I really know that following Jesus is completely the right thing for me to do. I, I just know that's true. I know he is who he claimed to be. But I have to be honest, I don't feel this overwhelming love for him. And I don't have this complete trust and faith in him. But I would like it. And so that's what they prayed with me about. Anyway, a month after that, I just remember, just one evening, I hadn't even, I kind of forgot that moment. A month after that, in a little lane at the back of my house, I just knew I love God. And I totally believe him. I totally believe that Jesus' death on the cross was for my salvation. I believe in his resurrection. I just knew faith came in my heart. And I didn't conjure it up. It was a gift from God's. So if you have faith in your heart, that's an indicator that you're his sheep. That's amazing. Not bad, eh? Faith is our responsibility. It is our response to his ability to save us. I don't trust in my work for him. I trust in his work for me on the cross and in his resurrection. He did it all. I believe him. I receive salvation. That's how good this is. And that's how it always works with healing, deliverance, salvation, whatever God does in your life. It's because he's doing the work and you believe him for it. And listen, faith is also a continual gift. It wasn't just a gift he gave you. I don't look back and say, well, in 1991, way back in the lane at the side of my house, that's when God gave me that gift. And kind of, see you at the end, Pete. Hope you hold on to that faith. No, that's not how it works. Faith is a continual gift. He, today, I have faith in my heart. Why? Because he's still given me that gift. That's the point. It's not just that hope you hold on to it. No, no. He gives you it and gives you it and gives you it. He perpetually gives it to you. And you are perpetually believing because he is sustaining you in that faith. Now, that's good news. You ever worried, what if I lose this? What if I, what if I don't believe anymore? Well, if you don't believe anymore, you didn't believe right in the first place. You maybe conjured up something, but it wasn't God's faith in your heart. If you have faith in your heart, it was a gift from God. And that gift from God, God will not remove. God will not backpedal. He will not take that gift away. It is a perpetual gift to you. I love what John Piper says. He, he said it really well. He said this, our assurance isn't that God will save us even if we stop believing, but that God will keep us believing. That's the point. God will enable, you ask these questions, what if I stop believing? That's not the question. The point is God will keep you believing. True faith is a gift from God that will be perpetually given continually. It's called perseverance. It's called continuing. It's, it's called those who stand firm to the end will be saved. That's what it's talking about. It's an enduring, it's not the kind of faith that was an emotional high that came and went, you know. It's not that. 
it's talking about the kind of faith which, like the seed in the parable, the mustard seed, and the, sorry, in the sower, where it went into the deep soil and it held on with a noble and a good heart, and it went root down. It wasn't shallow. It wasn't short-lived. It was in there, and it produces 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. Continual faith. And true faith follows. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. True faith follows. Some people say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus and all that. Great. I'm a Christian. But this following Jesus' discipleship malarkey, uh, not so sure, but I've taken it a wee bit seriously, that. Well, that's the real faith. Real faith follows. If it doesn't, it's not real faith. Real faith and being a follower of Jesus are one and the same, completely. So are you saved? Next question is, can everyone be saved? That's a big question. Jesus said in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Um, A travel journalist called H.V. Morton describes a a trip he had made to Israel uh, and he was in the Bethlehem region and this is what he says. Early one morning, I saw an extraordinary sight not far from Bethlehem. Two shepherds had evidently spent the night with their flocks in a cave. The sheep were all mixed together, and the time had come for the shepherds to go their different directions. One of the shepherds stood at some distance from the sheep and began to call. First one, then another, then four or five animals ran towards him, and so on until he had counted his whole flock. This is a great example of how literally the sheep recognize the voice of their shepherds, and they come. And I kind of remember that feeling when I was 15. I wouldn't have put it in these terms. I wouldn't have found that vocabulary. But I would have just said, I kind of felt I was being pulled towards God's. And you know what that feels like. This is what Jesus is talking about. My sheep hear my voice. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe God chooses. I believe that. Just like a shepherd calls his flock, I believe God chooses. I believe that. Totally. But I also believe that you choose. And I know that's a confusion. I believe in the full sovereignty of God's. But I also believe that God has given sovereignty to us. I believe in our ability to make choices that affect our destinies. Absolutely. I believe that, I believe from earth's perspective that you chose God. And that's not an illusion. It's not like I thought I chose God, but actually God was manipulating and pulling the strings. No, no. You actually did choose God when you got saved. From earth's perspective, you chose God. And that is not an illusion. That is a reality. But from heaven's perspective, God chose you. And I know you have a difficulty with that, just like you had a difficulty with the Trinity. I get that. Me too. Who doesn't? You seen the number of books written about this stuff? You see the amount of debates about this stuff? Why is that all going on? Because people find it hard to get this. We can't get it. Just live with it and say, wow. Say, wow. I mean, I chose you, but you chose me. Uh Uh-huh. That's exactly how it works. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. And this is why we launch south. And this is why we believe in doing church in a way that engages the community. 1 Timothy 2 4. God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. I think he also wants all women to be saved as well. Give me an amen, ladies. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So don't somehow come up with some weird conclusion that just because God chooses and calls that somehow or another, oh, 
I don't like all of you, but you, no, 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 you don't understand. I believe he chooses and calls, but that does not, you've got to hold everything in tension. You've got to hold on to things that sometimes, how can you hold that and that? I don't know, but you just got to. You say, amen, God wants all, and yet God chooses. I understand that. It's amazing. But God has a perspective outside of time that we do not have, and we say, you're amazing, God. Can you lose your salvation? That's a big question. Verse 28 to 30, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Said Jesus, who is the creator of all, who died and purchased this with his own blood on the cross. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. If Jesus had said, I give them 20 years, and for 20 years no one can snatch them out of my hands, you would say, he means that for 20 years I'm totally, completely safe. That's what you'd say. But he didn't say that. He said, I give them eternal life. And that means you can be just as sure. If he'd said 20 years, you could be sure of that. If he says eternal life, you can be sure of that. If you can lose it, it wouldn't be eternal. Literally, the Greek text here says, they shall not ever perish forever. They shall not ever perish forever. Now, we get nervous. We get nervous. And we don't get nervous because we don't trust him. We get nervous because we don't trust ourselves, right? Okay? We, we look at our behavior, and we, and we look at our attitudes, and we look at how we think and act, and, and sure, we, we can trust him, sure. But when we look at ourselves, that's where our nervousness comes. But listen, if you could lose your salvation by sinning, then... Not one of us in this room, especially Sammy Ewan, would be saved. Amen, Sammy? I love how God has given you a pastor as an example of incredible grace, giving hope for everyone in this community. Isn't that amazing? Amen. Bill Johnson said this, you cannot lose through bad works what you did not gain through good works. Can I lose my salvation? Well... I guess you think, well, did you find your salvation in the first place? Was it you found God or was it God that found you? Okay, a bit of both, right? But is the bigger reality not that God found you? So I guess the, you're asking the wrong question. Can I lose my salvation is the wrong question. I guess the right question is, can God lose you? Because he's the one who found you. That's a better question. Can God lose you? Where did I put Sammy again? I, I knew I had him. He was that kind of quirky Irish guy. Sammy, where, come on, seriously, God? So I know you're all worried about, oh, could I lose God? No, no, no. You're worrying about the wrong thing because that's the ultimate reality isn't you found God. The ultimate reality is that God found you. So the bigger question is, can God lose you? I don't think so. I don't think so. 
You see, if your salvation and security was dependent on you, I also, based on me and you, would be insecure. But if our salvation is based on God, then you can trust Him not just to be your Savior, but to stay your Savior and to continue to save you for all eternity. That's really good news. That is the best news you've heard all morning. And it's only 11.15. Let's hear it for Jesus who's just given us some great news through the Bible. Way back in the mid-1950s, uh, General Motors used to do their, their car shows. And in, in their car shows, they didn't just display their cars. But apparently in, in their 19, one of the 1950 car shows in Miami, they also had lots of exhibits of kind of very expensive items. There was one exhibit of million-dollar notes, and they had this on in a, in a glass cabinet. And then they had also what was known as the Hope Diamonds, which is the largest blue diamond in the world, and had it on display at their motor show. Anyway, during the, during the exhibition, there was a, a thunderstorm, and the thunderstorm knocked the power out across the city, and including on this car show. And immediately, all the employees of General Motors got in their cars and put the headlights on and drove and made a circle surrounding and protecting the million-dollar bills exhibit and the Diamond of Hope exhibit. And inside that, they were surrounding, but inside that, there were all the security guards standing there with guns. There was a double security making sure that they were safe. And did you know that you have a double security? Look at what Jesus said in the verses. Verse 28, Jesus, first of all, said, you're safe in his hands. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. So why did Jesus say, no one can snatch them out of my hands? Why didn't he first say, and why didn't he only say, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hands? Why not just make the one point, you have one security, you're in the Father's hands. Why make the point that no one can snatch them out of my hands, said Jesus? Well, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who came into the world to save us. It needed to be that way. You see, the reason Jesus said no one can steal them out of my hand is because this. You were in the Father's hands in Genesis 1 and 2, but in Genesis 3, we jumped out of the Father's hands and threw ourselves into Satan's hands. That was what the fall of, the ma fall of mankind was all about. And the only way that that curse could be reversed was that God became a man. There was no other way that God became a man. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, born sin-free without that Adamic nature, lived sin-free, resisting all temptations that came his way, died in the cross as the perfect sinless sacrifice on behalf of all sinners. And only because Jesus died in the cross could we have any hope of being rescued and ransomed and reconnect with God the Father. Our connection with the Father happened through the Son. That's why Jesus said, no one can steal you out of my hands. And you have to understand that love always leads to substitution. You know, if you've been a parent and you, you see your kids suffering in some way or another, I mean, it's most parents would say, I wish I could take their place. I wish I could take this for them. Isn't that just the most natural thing for a parent to say? So love always leads to substitution. And that's exactly what happened in the heart of God. God in his love for fallen humanity, rather than abandoning us and saying to hell with you because of your sin, God in his radical love 
required substitution. So God became a man. He substituted himself on your behalf, all your sin, all your regrets. He died in your place, a sinless sacrifice on behalf of sinners. That's what took place in the cross. In the fourth century in Korea, there were two brothers. One went on to become the chief magistrate of the lands. The other went on to become a bandit and a thief and a criminal. The older brother, who was the chief magistrate, loved the younger brother and often appealed to him to lead the life of crime. But the younger brother refused. And one day, the younger brother was arrested for a terrible crime that required the death penalty. And he was brought in front of none other than his own brother, who was the chief magistrate of the land. Everyone in the land assumes that because it was his brother, he would be let off. But his brother sentenced him to death because that's what justice required. On the day of the execution, the older brother came to visit his younger brother in prison and said, here's what we do now. I now take your place. The younger brother went with it because he thought that by the time the execution comes to execute, they'll recognize it's not me and they'll let him off. So he went with it. And he sat on a hill to observe what took place. And to his horror, his elder brother was led out and was executed in his place and put to death. He ran down the hill and shouted to the executioner, you can't do this. He's not the guilty one. I'm the guilty one. And the executioner said, there is no outstanding crimes for anyone in this name. And the great news about the cross of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ died as our sacrifice. And in dying as our sacrifice, he literally acquitted us from all our sins. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, and this this isn't just on the cross and his resurrection, but still today, listen to what it says. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. His success has become your success. His acceptance before the Father has become your acceptance before the Father. His eternal security is your eternal security, because you are in him. I love what the hymns, the famous old hymn says, near, so very near to God, I cannot nearer be. For in the person of his son, I am as near as he. Dear, so very dear to God, more dear I cannot be. The love wherewith he loves his son, such is his love to me. The father now interacts with us just as he interacts with his own son. Because we're in him, we now share in his relationship eternally with the Father. That's the amazing truth of this great gospel. Ephesians 1 verse 6 says, He made us accepted in the beloveds. Is the Father pleased with Christ? Yes, then he's pleased with you. Is the Father delighting in Christ? Yes. So therefore, he delights in you. Would the Father eternally condemn Christ? No chance. Therefore, Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's your new status. Nothing to do with you. Everything to do with him. Faith is my responsibility. It is my response to his ability to save me, not just in the past, but in eternity. Give me an amen if you agree. So you're safe in Jesus' hands, but you're also safe in the Father's hands. Verse 20, 
9 to 30, Jesus said, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. It says in Colossians 3 verse 3, You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's describing this new life. Your old life came to an end. In your faith in Jesus, you came alive into a new life. Your old self died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Get your thumb out. Wrap your fingers around your thumb. So this is you, right? This is you. Your life is now hidden with Christ. Wrap your fingers around your thumb. Get your other hands in God. You have a double security. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are so enveloped in God because of Jesus' death and resurrection that you are eternally secure. Jesus said in John 17, 23, listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says to the Father. He said, you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. You know how much God loves you? God loves you just as much. The Father loves you just as much as the Father loves his own eternal Son. That's amazing. Just like Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. God does exactly the same. God loves you just as he loves himself. So you need to understand that God's love can never diminish and can never be added to. A million years from now, God cannot love you any more than he does now, and he couldn't love you any less than he does now. His love for you today is perfect and eternal, and the scale of his love is the same love with which, within the Godhead, eternally, out of which everything was created, within that love, within relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that same love is the love directed towards you. You are radically and incredibly loved by God, remarkably loved by God. And that should give you such security. When my son was young, and we'd be walking along the street, I'd be holding his little hands, and we'd be walking along, especially in a busy street, I'd be holding his hand nice and tight, and he'd be holding my hands. And he probably thought, I've got dad here. I've got dad. I've got him. But the bigger reality is, I've got him. He was in the father's hands. And if he slipped, it wouldn't be like, oh, my ability to hang on. No, I would have him. I would have him in a second, in a flash. I would have him. And so the Father is like that with you. He so loves you. And this is our assurance. I remember when I was, I'd just become a Christian and I was walking along in the little village I lived in just outside of Glasgow. And there was two guys well-dressed in suits and they had briefcases and they got into conversation with me and they seemed to be Christian. But then as I started talking to them, I realized, actually, these guys aren't Christian the way I understand Christian. They were Mormons, Okay. So Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would come across as Christian, but that's not Christianity. They have a very different view of Jesus and a very different view of salvation. And as I started talking to them, one of the things I always remember, I don't remember everything we said, but one thing that struck me in the conversation was they talked about their hope, how they hoped that they would have eternal life. And I remember going back and looking in the Bible that afternoon, and I came across this verse in 1 John 5 verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Anyone believe in the name of the Son of God here today? So that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm not having to do anything to earn anything. He did it all for me. And I'd rather it that way because he gets the glory for my salvation rather than me getting the glory for my salvation. He gets all the credit for it, not me. He did it. And I have 
you have, as a believer in Jesus, you have eternal life. It's already done. Say, I've arrived. Say, I've arrived. You've already got it. I've arrived. Romans 8, verse 30. Those who he predestines, he also calls. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Big words for half past 11 on a Sunday morning. But great words, life-giving words. Those whom he predestined. Whoa, that's a big word, big thought. God apparently saw it coming. God apparently had a plan. God is outside of time. He saw all. He planned you and predestined you. And so a moment came where he called you. And you remember that moment? You felt called. I was drawn to God. That wasn't a surprise to God. He'd planned that way back. But you felt it. And you remember the day. For me, it was 1991 for you. I don't know when. Maybe, maybe today is your day. Maybe today. But then those he called, he also justified. Remember when you put your faith in him? That was the moment you were justified. Just as if I had never sinned. Cleansed. Declared righteous before a holy God. Eternally secure. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the weird thing about that is that all the other phrases we can look back to in our past, predestined, well, God did that way back, called, I remember, 1991, justified, well, that was the moment I accepted Jesus, 1991, glorified, wait a minute, if you look in your Bibles, glorification is my future event. I know it looks like I'm glorified already, but I'm not there yet. We're going to get there. That's a future event. It's a moment where it all wraps up and this body of death is done away with, get a resurrected body, it's all new. But apparently God speaks, look how God speaks about it. Does God speak about your glorification as if it's a future event or as if it's a done deal? Tell me. What does it say? Say it nice and loud. It's a done deal. Only one person saw that in the verses. You can all answer it with, does, it, does it God say it like it's a done deal? He does it like it's a done deal. Yes. That means, say, say I've arrived. I've arrived. And you haven't even started and yet you've arrived. Because those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified because of the cross and resurrection. And those whom he justified, I know you're in this thing called time. He's not. He knows how exactly how this finishes. And as far as he's concerned, if all those other things have happened in your life, the other is guaranteed to happen. He's never failed with anyone yet. And you're not going to be the first. You're so secure. John 5, 24. Very truly, this is Jesus saying this, very truly I tell you, Whoever hears the words, my words, and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has already crossed over from death to life. That's amazingly good news. Say, I've arrived. Religion says do. Christianity says done. And that's your assurance. Way back when they were building the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Is that right? San Francisco. Apparently during the first part of the construction phase, they had no safety apparatus. And as people were working, 23 men fell to their death. At this point, they realized it might be quite good to have some health and safety regulations. (laughs) Yeah, just like today, eh? you know, one pair, I scratched my finger. Okay, let's quickly, you know. In those days, they waited until 23 people had died, and then they thought about it. Okay, But they put a huge safety net under this construction for the second half of the construction process. And in the second half of the construction process, only 10 people fell 
And each, of the, each one of them was safe, rescued in this safety harness. But what was interesting, furthermore, was that their productivity on site improved by 25%. I guess they were not clinging on for dear life. I guess they were a bit more liberated just to get on with it. And, and here's, here is the reality. When you have an assurance that you're his, that safety net's there. All of a sudden, you don't need to worry about the ultimate. The ultimate's already been dealt with. It was in your past. It was on the, actually 2,000 years ago on the cross. That was when the ultimate was dealt with. And you came to Christ. You're a sheep. You obeyed his faith. You came to faith. You obeyed his voice. You came to him. You have to understand that there's a huge safety net under you. It's called eternal assurance. And that liberates you just to get on with the work, to get on with living for God, loving the poor, sharing the gospel, planning new locations, living your destiny, making a difference with your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we have to say that you are a marvelous Savior. You're a really, really great Savior. Thank you for being the good shepherd who calls your sheep. Thank you, Jesus, for being the one who rescues us. And thank you for giving us those words of huge encouragement. And you can't lie, and you said that no one can snatch us out of your hands and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. So thank you, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, our Savior. Thank you for being a great and mighty and awesome God. We haven't grasped everything, but what we do grasp, we're astonished at. And we say thank you to you just now. Just each one of you in his presence, take a moment to pray back your own response to God. Maybe here today, maybe there's one or two of you here that have never put your faith in Jesus. And he calls you today. And his desire is for you. In fact, the whole reason he went to the cross is so that you could be his. And I believe he's brought you here today because he's calling you. And he calls you to follow him. He calls you to trust in him. And faith is arising in your heart. And today's your day. Why not cross that line in your heart? Make that decision. Be a follower of Jesus. So if that's you today and you're saying, Peter, today I'm going to put my trust in the Savior. Then I invite you just to pray this prayer with me just now. Or maybe at some point in the past you had made that decision, but you feel you've wandered, you've been a straying sheep. The great news is he hasn't let go of you. And today's the day given, come back, walk again with Jesus. If either of you are here, I would like to pray with you. And if that's you, pray this prayer with me, just under your breath. This is your prayer to him, and this is your moment where you can experience this salvation from him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your incredible love for me. Thank you for dying for me in that cross and rising again. Thank you, you're alive right now. Today I put my faith in you. Today I place my whole trust in you to be my savior. And I choose to follow you like a sheep would follow a shepherd. Thank you for hearing me and accepting me today. If you prayed that prayer, the great news is God heard you 
and God accepts you. I'd love to pray for you. If you're here today and that's the decision you made, that's the prayer you prayed, and that's the decision you made, let me pray for you. In order to know who I'm praying for, could you just let me know by raising your hands? If that's you today, thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Is there anyone else before I pray? Thank you. This is great. Jesus, thank you that you predestined these people. And today you've called them. You've justified them. And they are secure now in you. And Lord, as they have responded to you, thank you that you have already done a work in them. Jesus, thank you for dying for them, for rising again for them. And I pray that right now would be the beginning of for them of a journey with great assurance, knowing that they're God's. Bless them. Fill them with your love and power. In Jesus' name, amen.